Welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. In this 13th episode, we talk about one of Winston's and many people's favorite science fiction novels, Dune by Frank Herbert. I was so thrilled the other day when someone on Twitter requested a Dune episode because, spoiler alert, we'd already recorded this episode, and I'm so excited to release it. We talk about the overt religious overtones in the book and how it comments on our own histories, cultures, and societies. In a broader sense, we talk about the purpose of sci-fi and fantasy in our society. This episode definitely opened my eyes up to how deep the metaphors run in this book, so I hope you enjoy Winston's insights and learn a thing or two about wine along the way. There are minimal spoilers in this episode, so it should be fine to listen to, even if you haven't read the book, unless you want to know absolutely nothing about the world of Dune. I do need to include another content warning for discussion of sexual assault and child abuse as they relate to this novel. If these subjects bother you, check the episode notes for the exact minutes that I would recommend skipping. If you are looking for help or support, please visit RAIN, that's R-A-I-N-N, dot org, or call 1-800-656-HOPE, that's 1-800-656-3673. Before we begin, I want to thank our newest member on Patreon. Thank you, Sarah LaPointe-Price, sorry if I mispronounced your name, our 20th patron. Amazing! As well, of course, as Mara Zobrist, our advanced, aka producer-level patron. You both, as well as our 18 other amazing, generous patrons, control the spice that controls the universe. If you would like to join Sarah and Mara and get rewards like audio extras, my notes, personalized pairings, and more, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can make a monthly donation to the show and help us grow. Also, a huge thank you to everyone who has left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to contribute to pairing but don't feel able to make a monetary donation, which is so fine, consider leaving us a review. It's 100% free, but its effect is priceless. Not only will you make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, you will also help us conquer the iTunes charts, which is the number one thing that helps us reach a larger audience. The next best thing is telling a friend, family member, or posting on social media about us. Mostly, we're just grateful to you for listening and love hearing from you. Without further ado, here is episode 13. So yeah, we gotta we gotta go to Target. We gotta get better chairs. Yeah, definitely. This is, these are not optimal chairs for for a re- sound recording. No, not at all. But here we are in our closet again, <laughs> <laughs> recording um, and talking and drinking wine and talking about books and movies and talking about what we want to drink with those movies. Oh God, I'm not gonna put my arm back there. Okay. <laughs> so you told me, you told me that uh, it would be acceptable if I was to talk about uh, Dune. I did bit. tell you that. I did. Yeah. And I stand by that statement. And maybe you could do some some pairing. Yeah, right, absolutely. While we're at it. Okay. So do, first of all, what are we drinking right now? We're drinking. Well, we're drinking the Jayo um, sparkling rosé. Jayo is a prosecco producer, actually. So in the Veneto region of North. East Italy, um, but this is their this is their sparkling rosé, which is not technically prosecco because it's not 
made from the right grapes, but it's uh, 50% Pinot Noir and 50% Merlot, and 100% delicious. Well, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so here's what here's what I think about Dune, and you, you tell me, I mean, you've read it too, but... I have, but a long time ago, and I don't yeah. remember a lot of it. So one of the things I think is coolest about Dune is how overtly religious it is Mm -hmm. it is a very religious book Mm -hmm. you know and uh so it starts with like the litany against fear is uh happens in one of the first chapters paul atreides is putting his hand in like the weird testing box that uh reverend mother gaius helena mohayim brings to him Mm -hmm. and he sticks his hand in there and it's like burning his hand mm. like it feels like the flesh is melting off his hand That's and so right. one of the things he does to keep himself calm because if he takes his hand off the box she's going to kill him mm-hmm. with like an instantaneous poison so he does this thing called the litany against fear which i think is amazing and he says i must not fear fear is the mind killer fear is the little death that brings total oblivion I shall face my fear. I shall allow it to pass over me and through me. When the fear is gone, I shall turn the inner eye inward to see its path. And where it has gone, there shall be nothing. Only I will remain. Damn. Yeah, right? End quote, I guess. End quote, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I think that's one of the coolest things about it is how overtly religious it is. And it's in this crazy feudal society, and... There's giant worms. Well, yeah. And I mean, yeah, Arrakis is crazy. Arrakis, know? that's right. Yeah, that's Dune, desert planet. That's right. Yeah. So what what are you thinking so far in terms well, of pairing? Well, so I'm thinking about, you know, religious, being overtly religious and how that relates to wine, because certainly, you know, you if you go visit many ancient sites in Europe or many old vineyards, old established estates, they were, if not still are, run by monks. Run they were monasteries. Yeah, um, like the Trappist monks. Yeah, the Trappist monks. Um they, they those are more beer. That's beer. Yeah, that's but... more beer. But in Burgundy for sure, m- most estates or many estates at one point or another were run by monks. And so that's that's kind of what I'm thinking right now. And so specifically, I'm kind of thinking of Chablis in uh, in Burgundy. Why Chablis? Because if I'm not mistaken, and I could be mistaken, and I'd have to double check this, and I can double check this because I've got these giant books here, but um, I th- I'm pretty sure that there are many old estates in, in Burgundy and in Chablis specifically that were run by monks. Um, and so monks, ironically to me, I think, you know, you know, made a ton of wine and drank a ton of wine yeah. because, you know, you got to do something. If you Apparently you used to get a, a liter or a gallon of beer a day mm-hmm. was the monks a lot. Mm-hmm. So you were expected right. to pray and be silent and study, but you also got like plenty of beer I'm just gonna <laughs> for every day. Look this up in Jancis Robinson's Oxford Companion to Wine real quick. We're going to look up Chablis. In the meantime. And you keep talking. Yeah. So what I think is also really cool, and this is like 
David Lynch's Dune is maybe one of the best bad movies ever. Yeah. It's bad on so it many so levels. It, it 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 relies heavily on voiceover. It's narratively almost incoherent. Uh, the changes it makes are nonsensical. But one of the things it does that I do love is it introduces the Mentats prayer, where mm. um, when I, I believe his name is Peter de Vries or Peter de Vries, he's the Mentat for the Harkonnen. And as he's going to talk to Baron Harkonnen, the first time you see him in the movie, he says, It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of Safu. The thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. And this is like the prayer of the human computer. And I think that, I don't know, there's something so interesting to me about the mantras that this movie and the book want to uh, convey. And you you found some stuff. I found some stuff. So... Okay, so this is, again, this is Jancis Robinson writing in the Oxford Companion to Wine. Jancis Robinson, um, master of wine, possibly the greatest wine scholar in the world. Um, She's amazing. I got to see her talk last year at the Burgundy Festival. Very exciting. So she writes here in the history of Chablis, although it was the Romans who introduced vines to Chablis, as to so many other parts of France, it was the medieval church, noticeably the Cistercian monks of the nearby abbey, of Pontigny, who firmly established viticulture as an essential part of the rural economy, possibly even introducing the Chardonnay vine. And then we could we could look more into into the history yeah. of Burgundy for sure. But I knew I remembered something about Cistercian monks um, being incredibly important to wine production beginning in Chablis in kind of like you know the fifteenth sixteenth centuries. Well, and that's amazing because uh, I think a big part of the Reformation movement had to do with the fact that these monasteries were actually becoming quite rich. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with viticulture and, you know, like tourism for the relics and whatever. And then when um, the English and later, you know, some German principalities started rebelling against Catholicism, one of the things they wanted to do was seize the property and the money of these monks. Mm-hmm. And I think that that translates pretty pretty well to the way the empire in Dune relates to the Bene Gesserit and the various other religious orders. Totally. Um, because this all... relationship between um, church and state and tourism as a, you know, form of economic growth and and it exists in dune and it exists in the real world and you know it's kind of it's it's a little different than it used to be 500 years ago but not that much different the whole thing is that it's kind of atavistic dune is sort of atavistic and like every order in dune whether it's the navigators or the bene jesuit or the fremen or the oh my gosh i can't remember what the emperors oh the sardaukar Mm. Uh, Sardauk- like they're all almost religious orders mm-hmm. and that that's how they function is they function through mantra and tradition and all this stuff yeah. and they're really trying to sort of supplant the local identity of the people that they're trying to govern because they're governing an entire galaxy you know and so it, it becomes a thing about a like a a globe-spanning or a galaxy-spanning religion rather than just, you know, sort of isolated, independent things. And obviously, like, the Fremen have this huge 
uh, Muslim undertone. Like mm. one of the main things the Fremen say is they denied us the Hajj. And mm-hmm. the Hajj is the pilgrimage mm-hmm. to Mecca right. in, in our current in, society. Yeah. But in Dune, I think tonight us the Hajj means they kept us from going back to our home world. Like mm-hmm. the Fremen are supposed to be these rebels from way back when. And they're sort of consigned to Dune mm. as a punishment. Hmm. And they learn to live there. But they develop this this sort of very proto-Muslim society almost. Um, Do you think there's a linguistic relationship between Fremen and Freemen? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly that's, what that, it's supposed yeah. to be. No, it's I I don't even think it's it's uh, it's it's not even like a question. Okay, that's what Fremen yeah. means. The free men. Yeah, cool. You know, because they've bent that's the always... knee, they've bent the knee to nobody. They're like the wildlings. Yeah, yeah, or the rebel, not the Rebel Alliance, but in Rogue One. What's his name? Oh my gosh, Forrest Whitaker's. Yeah, guys? kind of Forrest Whitaker's guys, or even uh, Diego Luna, Diego Luna's guys. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe because I've got desert on the mind and I see desert yeah. there. That's sort of like my visual equivalency. But yeah, but that, um, that's their whole thing is that they're they're unbowed in a feudal society that spans an entire galaxy. They're one of the few groups of people who are completely unbowed and who are nonetheless terrifying because yeah. the the way they can survive in this harsh environment allows them to be some of the best fighters in the galaxy. Like the whole idea is that the Emperor Sardaukar, who are trained on like a radioactive planet where everything can kill you, are the best troops in the galaxy. But the Fremen are just naturally just as good as them mm. because yeah. they live in Arrakis. Right. You know, like the still suits and the way they survive and the way they fight, the way they travel on, you know, giant desert worms. Right. Like they can. And the movie has this whole cockamamie thing about them using sound as a weapon, which I actually think is cool. Great word, cockamamie. Yeah. <laughs> points points for vocabulary. Thank you, Thank you, you very much. Nope. <laughs> but in the book, it has nothing to do with, like, a secret weapon. It just has to do with the fact that the Fremen are so hard as fighters and mm-hmm. so good as guerrilla fighters mm-hmm. that they are equal to or better than anything the Empire has to send against them. Yeah. And so when they start controlling the fuel... Mm-hmm. which the spice is fuel. The spice right. melange is what allows the navigators to fold space. Man, I really need to reread this book. It's so good. Yeah. But it, the spice can only come from Dune. It's the only place in the entire universe where it's found. And so once the Fremen start controlling it, then they become a threat. And then once they become a threat, like they're better fighters than anybody. Right. And they can use the whole planet as part of their weapon systems. Yeah. I don't know. I'm also, I don't know why I've got my mind wrapped around this kind of like medieval world, but I'm also thinking of the Crusades. Yeah. Um, And I remember <clears throat> featuring, there's, uh, I believe there's this estate in Provence in southern France. I'm still in France. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. Let's um, go to France. Yeah, we're in France. Um, But there's this estate in uh, Provence in southern France called Commanderie de Parasol, they were like ostensibly one of the last stops on the crusade like before you had to go to italy yeah and the balkans yeah exactly exactly so they've got the that cross that red cross on all their labels yeah. or on some of their labels 
which I just think is funny. So are they in like southeastern France then? Yeah, Provence is right on that coast there. Right, the that's Medi- the coast on the Mediterranean, and, sort of like and going through the Italian Alps. Yeah, to get through yeah, Italy, absolutely. Or, or you're taking a ship down yeah. from Provence to Italy, and then mm-hmm. you can keep going. Mm-hmm. And again, I'd have to look up exactly what it is, but I know they have some relationship to the Crusades. And um, so the, the Provence, obviously famous for rosé, but they actually do make some really good red wine there. And I remember. We had like a Merlot Cab- Cabsov blend, I think. That was really good. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. Anyway, that that's another wine I could see. I could see relating to this. There's something just very like religious and kind of. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the Crusades because um, one of the foundational events in the lore of the Dune universe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is something called the Butlerian Jihad. And really? It's, yeah. And so it's, there's a lot of Muslim, yeah, Islamic kind of oh huge reference. Yeah, this. and this was back in the 50s before it was like controversial Ooh. to depict anything Islamic as you know positive. Right. But the Butlerian Jihad is, and this is the reason we have mentats too. Mentats are human computers. The reason the Butlerian Jihad happens is that man invents AI. AI mm-hmm. promptly takes over the world, Matrix style. And then mm-hmm. the Butlerian Jihad is a holy war huh. that humanity fights against the machines. Interesting. And defeats them. And actually, Frank Herbert's son, as he was writing all his prequels and stuff, like one of the things he he, he writes a book called The Butlerian Jihad and then this one called The Machine War. Mm-hmm. But they're essentially the same thing. And the Atreides and the Harkonnen and the Koronos, who are, that's the family the emperor's from, mm-hmm. um, they all take part in this, this war against the machines. And that's where the feudal families that own whole planets come from in this Dune universe. It's like the Atreides are supposed to have fought on this bridge, they call it a bridge, mm-hmm. against the machines, and the Harkonnen are supposed to have abandoned them, and that's mm. where the feud comes from. And then the Kornos are supposed to have done something else heroic, mm. and that's like that's where all these feudal fiefdoms come from, and where all the enmities come from, and they're they're millennia long feuds, uh-huh. you know. But the the idea of a holy war against yeah. the machines is one of the foundational concepts of dune and it's like you know because it was written in the 50s it came out in the 50s and it was all about sort of like the changing nature of the Mm -hmm. modern world and Mm -hmm. this was kind of like it's very regressive in a certain way the way Mm -hmm. it treats women is obviously horrible did dune really come out in the 50s mm -hmm. yeah frank herbert's dune came out in like long ago i I mean don't quote me on it but i think it was 1954 1955 i mean we can we can fact check that later for sure for sure um Hi, it's a fact checker Emma from the future here. It turns out that Dune was actually published in 1965, not the 50s. Thanks, Internet. Now back to the episode. But that, but that is really interesting to me, and just in you know, because I think I read Dune before I really had any sort of social cognizance of what its meaning might be in the modern world. I just kind of read it as like a fun sci-fi novel, you right. know. You know, I was pretty young. I was probably like 10 or 11 when I read it. And probably did not understand half of what I read. But in just hearing you talk about it now, I hear this. It really feels like very religious and like holy war to me, but on a on a cosmic scale yeah. and in a in a in a different world than what we live in now. But and that's what I mean, 
that's what a lot of fantasy and sci-fi is. It's expressing certain values and certain human experiences, even on a kind of more global his- historical scale. It's trying to process a lot of what's going on in the world. Yeah. Right? And I think that one of the things Dune is doing, you know, because it's written by an American, mm-hmm. and it's an American's take on the feudal system. Right. And I think that it has to do with the fact that America has now emerged as this global power. Mm-hmm. And, like, how do we reconcile this with the history of humanity? Yeah. And, like, how does that translate? And Frank Herbert is almost saying, like, I'm, I'm not sure we can sustain a democratic society mm-hmm. as it expands. And it's in that way like a, a, an amazing warning about the fragility of global democracy and of global freedom, you know, because it, Dune, obviously everything has reverted to feudalism and mm-hmm. women are consorts and concubines yeah. and, you know, chattel again yeah. after, after everything's happened. And it's and it's he's obviously not writing female characters to be weak or to be, you know, traded, but he's writing them in this society that doesn't value them correctly. Yeah. And the Bene Gesserit are kind of in the background, sort of still running everything, but they're having to do it in this, you know, crazy clandestine way. And so I think in that way, it's a, it's a very, it's very prophetic about how mm-hmm. fragile our institutions that we believe in are yeah um so just in in talking about this and you're talking about america in terms of america's position as a global power um in terms of dune i'm now thinking about a a wine region that i've neglected to talk about very much which is america oh Um, (laughs) and so i hear they make wine there we do you know we make some wine here um we're learning we're learning how to do it (laughs) But what I what what immediately popped into my mind when you say Dune is you know the desert, and in general the desert is not an optimal place to grow grapes no, and make not wine. At all. No, because it, you need that limestone. You need that. Yeah, water. yeah. The soil is just not good. I mean, well, you know, there's certain. Like, you know, there's certain grapes that grow well in sandy soil. There's certain grapes that grow well in hot weather. There's certain grapes that grow better in cold weather. The problem with the desert is that it's just sand and it's really hot during the day and really cold at night. And that's not usually great. There's not really any soil to speak of. Yeah. I think the soil is probably the main problem because there's lots of places where, where grapes are grown where the diurnal shifts. Here's your wine. Here's your wine terminology of the day. Um, diurnal shift means basically the shift in temperature from day to night. And so if there's a extreme diurnal shift, it means that it's hot during the day and cold at night. Um, so like in a region like Rioja or Ribera del Duero in uh, Spain, those are regions that have pretty extreme diurnal shifts, and yet the grapes grow well in that environment. But still, it's a different terroir from the desert. And a lot of that has to do with elevation and blah, blah, blah. And okay. But so talking about desert, the first place that pops into my mind as a, as a wine growing region in the States, um, which may surprise some people, is New Mexico. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Hello. Yeah. New Mexico. All right. 505. Actually, represent. also sidebar, we just got some wines into the store from Mexico itself, oh. which is pretty exciting. I've Mexico, heard. I've yeah. heard of that country. Not, not, not a desert. But I'm from that's a I'm from bar. the new one. 
Yeah, you're from the New Mexico. <laughs> in New Mexico, the most famous wine you'll find is called Gruet. Yeah. And Gruet is sparkling wine. The sparkling wine. Yeah, and so they make a sparkling, a regular sparkling, a sparkling rosé. It's based in Albuquerque. Yeah. At least the facility. Probably are. the facility. I doubt that the, I mean, the, the vineyards themselves are probably somewhere else. They're probably in southern New Mexico. Yeah, but just like, you know, when we were in Arizona, we went to that tasting room in, yeah. in Jerome in Arizona, which is really, which is an amazingly amazing cute town. Talk about fantasy. Yeah, seriously. Like it's like, a, it's like old Wild West yeah. mining town with, on the top like, of the hill. With like a bunch of... Uh, uh, insane asylums up yeah, there, and yeah. old like defunct copper mines. It was, it was great. totally cool. Definitely go visit Jerome, Arizona. But so anyway, so in New Mexico, Gruet, probably the biggest producer, definitely the biggest producer in New Mexico. Um, and there was one that I I sold before uh, called I think it was Domaine Saint Vincent. Oh, I've heard of that. You've heard of yeah. that one? Yeah, it was pretty good. Also sparkling wine. You know, nothing fancy, nothing deeply profound, but it's it's good sparkling wine. And it's very dry and it's very crisp. Yeah, it's passable. It's more than passable. It's it's good. It's just, you know, it's not like champagne, but... Right. Which, champagne is another region to talk about. I'm just obsessed with France right now. I don't... I should stop. Okay, well, <laughs> well going back to Dune... I think um, one of the main things uh, or the like one of the main divisions in Dune that we're supposed to as readers pick up on is the division between the three main noble houses that are mm-hmm. concerned. And this is okay. before the the holy jihad kind of destroys the feudal system. So there's that okay. religious overtone. But the three main houses are the Atreides, mm-hmm. the Harkonnen, mm-hmm. and the Korno. Mm-hmm. So the Atreides are the people who rule Kaitain. It's like a water planet. They're mostly known for oh, like nice. delicious seafood and Yum. good wine. They make good wine. Oh my God, I love the Atreides. Yeah, Ugh. and then the Harkonnen live on this like horrifying industrial planet. Like everything is factories, and they're sort of supposed to be like the German yeah. you know, war machine kind of family. And then the Corno are like the high art like Versailles kind of French. I see. Right. And the Atreides are assigned, like the Harkonnen had been mining Dune for the spice. Uh-huh. The Corno take it away from the Harkonnen, mm-hmm. give it to the Atreides, and then like, you know, the whole book's plot happens. I'm not going to spoil yeah. it for people. But the the basic idea is between like agrarian, seafaring, you know, nobility mm-hmm. and industrial shit, and then the fact that like a far far away power, you know, the coronos can sort of manipulate them against each other. Yeah, and then that's all swept away by this religious resurgence when huh. Paul Atreides basically becomes the prophet. He basically becomes uh-huh. Muhammad. Uh huh. And like ignites this jihad, uh-huh. like a second jihad. Um, and shuts down the entire galactic transport system because nobody can get spice and everybody has to come and deal with him. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes literally a god emperor. Like, uh, what's his name? Xerxes. Sort of, yeah. Like Xerxes. But and... more than the king of kings, like he has, he's supposed to be the product of this 
hundreds of generations long breeding program that the Bene Jesuit have been doing. Mm-hmm. And he's called the Kwisatz Haderach. It's, mm-hmm. you know, basically means like the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But he makes it rain on Dune for the first time. Mm. He, you know, he creates this, like, he, at, well, at one point he becomes love... untethered from time and he can see the future and he can see his, like, forces sweeping across the galaxy. I love this. I love the mythology of, of a it. holy yeah. war. And he's like, he's trying to avoid that, but he can't really. And so at one point he sort of embraces it. And then he becomes this weird sort of immortal demigod, almost like Maui or Uh something like that. But it changes the whole system. It upends the entire like galactic feudal system. The Lansrat is Mm. the council of noble houses or whatever. Yeah, he just destroys everything. He's like a historical arsonist, as Dan Carlin would say. He just, uh-huh. like, sweeps everything away. Cool. Um, with his hordes of the faithful. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, Which is, you know, it has a historical sort of precedent. Absolutely, and we could go into a, I think we could go into a pretty deep discussion of the historical meanings and the, the allegorical possibilities of yeah. Dune. Uh, but for now, I really like this, thinking about the three different houses yeah. And what kind of like wine regions? Your French, your Germans, and your Greeks, basically. Kind of, okay, Atreides so the Atreides, you the think. The Atreides of, are supposed to be the sons of Atreus. Okay, cool. Because like I was thinking, I was, tragedy. you know, you were saying like they're medi- the kind of, I'm thinking Mediterranean. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, they're water based. And so I'm thinking kind of. I, my, my first thought was Sicily, just because that's a wine region that I deal with more as. You know, an island. There's obviously lots of water there, but obviously Greece, one of the oldest wine producing. This is this is interesting based on your discussion of what's going on in Dune because Greek wine has existed, as you might think, for who knows how long, right. like thousands and thousands like of years before the written word, basically. Probably, yeah. And so, and obviously Greek wine as we know it now is nothing like what it used to be. But Greek wine has kind of fallen out of fashion. For the most part, it's kind of been overtaken by. Really? Yeah, I mean, well, well, I mean, there's certainly great Greek wine out there, but it's not, it's not nearly as popular and widespread as French, Italian, Spanish. Um, at this point, even Ar- Argentine or Chilean wine, you know, like California, mm. you know, it's it's not a major wine region at this point. Now, that's not to say that we don't consider many Greek wines to be of the utmost quality. Um, one of my favorite white wines is made from a grape called Assyrtiko, which comes Assyrtiko, which comes from Santorini in Greece, the island of Santorini. Amazing, amazing white wine. Um, just like very crisp, but it's got this kind of like beeswaxy texture to it. Um, and some like kind of honeycomb layers to it. Sort of like thick on the tongue. Yeah, yeah, it is. But while still being really fresh and great lively acidity to it, like it's, it's one of my favorite grapes in the world. But like, you know, do you, dear listener, have you ever heard of a Sirtico? Like as opposed to like Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay, like, of course, like I think it's one of the greatest white grapes in the world, but it's just not that commonly found. Unless you find a, 
a wine merchant who's particularly interested in Greek wines. Obviously, if you go to Greece, it'll be a little bit different. Right. But, you know, these probably used to be some of the greatest wines in the world and, like, the most common and the most, you know, often drunk wines in the world, and that's not the case anymore. So I'm kind of thinking about it. And that as, what's the family? The Atreides. The, the Atreides. About the Atreides, and, you know, this can even be an allegory for the Greeks in general. Also, my heart's go. My heart, I only have one heart. I don't have multiple hearts. <laughs> yeah. My heart goes out to um, Greece and you know all the all the struggles they are having currently as a as a nation and a, as a wonderful wonderful place. I really want to go to Greece. Yeah. Um, it's interesting though. Like as uh, you're talking about, like how Greek wine has fallen in popularity, but the Greek diet or like the part mm -hmm. of the Mediterranean diet that's represented by Greek food seems to have become ever more popular. I mean, yeah. If you look at Anthony Bourdain, if you look for at sure, like all these for things, sure. but like I, just the greens and the, you know, the falafel. Yeah, I think that's Mediterranean true. The Mediterranean diet has like been writing this huge resurgence popularity. I think that's true. And I, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as someone who's worked in the wine industry for a while now, like I work with a very small amount of Greek wine as opposed to pretty much all other regions of wine. I mean, how could I correct you? I, I don't even have the Well, no, I'm I'm saying I'm saying to our dear listeners. Oh yeah. I was looking at you, but oh, but yeah. I'm talking to That's well, nice. We're engaging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. So, so next are the Harkonnen. Harkonnen, who they're, you're saying they're kind of like the German yeah, industrial. Yeah, they're, like, they're like the Germans, yeah. Baron okay, cool. Harkonnen. Cool. But that sounds kind of Russian to me. But Well, I think they're sort of mixed. It's the 50s, yeah, right? Yeah. So he's sort of like lumping the commies and the Nazis together <laughs> into one big giant <laughs> there evil you go. blob. Um, there you go. The, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, um, to give you... I remember to, him a little bit. Yeah, yeah, he give... floats in a suit, mm -hmm. uh, like a hovering suit, mm -hmm. because he is... Um, and there's a there's there's a homophobic undertone to the book where Baron Vladimir Harkonnen likes to fuck young boys, and mm -hmm. um, at least uh, Frank Herbert's son later in the uh, prequels went back and sort of retconned it so mm. that he rapes a Bene Jesuit sister, mm -hmm. and the Bene Jesuit one of the things they do in terms of mastering their bodies because they're like super martial arts masters and everything else, but mm -hmm. they also are like masters of their bodies at a cellular level. So while she's being raped, she releases all these horrifying venereal diseases huh. into him. Like, like, and they're just held in stasis in huh. her body and like she controls them. She can but control them. But... but because he's raping her, she's like, fuck you. And she releases all these venereal diseases into him, and it takes him from like a beautiful, you know, sort of Germanesque Aryan kind of Thoria mm -hmm. man mm -hmm. into this like huge fat fucking piece of pizza dough mm. who can't even support himself on his own legs. He mm. has to be like floating around. Interesting. Um, and so, like. That's the Harkonnen thing is, and he's also like sort of obsessed with his nephew Fade Rautha, who is, is played by Sting, Sting yeah, in the movie. Yeah, Sting in the movie. But in the book, he's like you know the Harkonnen's Gordon best shot. Sumner. Yeah, but you know, 
obviously Baron Harkonnen wants to fuck him. Uh, and so he's like grooming him as the next baron but also like lusting uh, after him at the same time oh that's so disturbing yeah and oh, he no, also drinks he drinks the heart blood out of uh, various people like most of the harkonnens have to have something called a heart plug put in which basically is like a little cork in the heart oh. that can just be pulled out at any time and the baron harkonnen will just like drink the goddamn blood of anybody who's like pissed him off or if he just feels like it or if it's a, like a beautiful boy it's like a very predatory depiction of oh it's very queer disturbing life it's very queer oh, it's very sexuality yeah it's very like oh, i'm going to eat you yeah yeah you. yeah clearly demonizing him for his homosexual yeah, desires but which like he's evil like you don't necessarily right, need to right right and there's his plenty gay, of yeah his queerness is 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 demonized made part of his evilness yeah you know? yeah um in a world where women are treated like chattel and property right so. <laughs> there's definitely issues with with dune as there are issues with a lot of fantasy and sci-fi for sure Ugh, okay moving on from that i don't well, know well i mean what can you, pa- what can you pair with that what can uh, you pair? Like evil? i think maybe i don't know I mean, when you first said German, I mean, obviously we could pair German wine with them, but right. like. Gewürztraminer. Gewürztraminer, yeah, something super unctuous. And Gewürztraminer is, is, is again a wonderful grape, a wonderful wine, but it's like, it tends to be quite sweet, perf- very aromatic, very perfumey and unctuous. And. Oh, but I will interject. Yeah. The Baron is covered in sores and he stinks. And so mm. he has to be surrounded by perfume oh, constantly I to see. mask his hideous we smell. We make a connection here. Okay, yes, we all make right. Connection. Okay, I yes, feel. I guess we're doing Russian. Now we're now, doing but, Russian. Uh, but it's, okay, no, it's, okay, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We were feeling weird yeah. about the German. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, this is nothing against German people and oh no not, like not at all i don't mean to be offensive at all i have many german friends and he gets deutschlander what he said but i do feel like gewürztraminer as a grape kind of works for this guy vladimir sort of sickly sweet yeah yeah just like ugh. yeah anyway no, he's he's designed to yeah, be very, very yucky yeah very full-bodied very oh okay all right okay let's move on Okay, so the, the last house... <laughs> that, left me, that whole conversation left me feeling icky. Yeah, you want to take a little shower? Yeah. Um, the last house is House Korno, mm-hmm. and that is the house of the Padishah Emperor. God, okay. I can't remember him. I can't remember his name. It's like something, something, the 29th. Okay. But the Kornos basically have been the imperial house for like the last thousand years if not more okay so i'm kind of thinking like caesar like holy roman empire kind of thing maybe a little bit like barbarossa yeah yeah which in that case we can go back to my favorite charlemagne oh yeah totally he was the first Mm -hmm. holy roman Emperor. he was he was i remember reading a book about charlemagne very very interesting but i don't remember never learned to read yeah, no, that's that's the cool thing about him. We're not the only cool thing about him. He did a lot. He also didn't accept Christ as his savior until he was on his death. That's right. He was yeah. like, just to cover my bases. Yeah. Okay. Sure, Jesus, okay. Fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. But so okay. But just thinking, Holy Roman Empire, Rome, 
it's interesting. There's not a ton of wine around Rome itself in Italy. But if you think about Italy as a whole, as kind of like part of the Roman Empire, and I mean, I mean, obviously there was a lot in the Roman Empire. Yeah, totally. But, well, there's a region around Rome called Lazio, and I'm not exactly sure what wine is grown there. Here, hold this. Every noble house has atomic weapons. It's like part of how you get to be a noble house. And the Coronos used part of their atomic stockpile to obliterate this planet and make it a radioactive wasteland and that's where they train the Sardaukar. Hmm. And so that's part of that. Just while you were looking up stuff. Oh, well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I found out that around Lazio um, that actually the most common grapes are two of my favorite white grapes. Um, Malvasia and Trebbiano. Trebbiano is one of my favorite white grapes. Really interesting, lots of texture and like it was one of the first white wines I ever tasted that I was like, oh my god, like this is as interesting or more interesting than a red wine. Like it's got many, many different layers to it. It's dry, it's herbally, it's got some fruit quality, it's got some kind of like green fruit quality to it. Um, it's really, really good. Um, but Maldosia, interestingly enough, and I have to look this up again, and actually, I think I have a little sheet, but I, I don't think I can get out of here right now. But um, Malvasia has roots in the Renaissance, and I believe is named after... Malvasia. I mean, you, Malvasia you can also find in Greece, in... That's a perfect fit. In Sicily, which I was also talking about earlier. Well, I think you've paired it very well, babe. Well, I've I've done my best. I don't know. This is these are the things that I think of when you talk about things. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think I think we've done a very good I job with so. Dune. I think so. I think so, and I think we should revisit Dune because it's clearly very complex. Absolutely. And we can really, really break it down. But I think this is a nice little introduction yeah, to tons it. Tons of unpacking to do. Absolutely. Pairing was created, produced, hosted, and edited by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, read, drink, and be merry.